Well, good morning, Harvest. What a great day to be in the house of the Lord, worshiping together in spirit and truth to the only true and wise King, Jesus Christ. It's such a privilege to be here to uh, worship with you and to be able to bring you God's word. My name is Chris Moeller. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're newer here to this campus, you probably won't recognize me because I'm always at the other campus. So I'm grateful to be here this morning with you. And if you would, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. I know we're in a Proverbs series and we will get there in a minute, but we're going to start in Ecclesiastes. And if you don't have God's word in front of you, please raise your hand. We want to put a Bible in your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep this as our gift to you. Um, I'm going to be going through a lot of scripture this morning, and so I'm actually going to have all of it on the screen as well, but we are going to start in Ecclesiastes 2. Happy Labor Day weekend, everyone, or as I like to call it, time to put step four on the lawn weekend. Any? We have a couple lawn nerds out there. Uh, maybe this is your friendly reminder. Step four goes on this weekend. It's the weekend where we wrap up our summer cottages. We go for our last hurrah camping trip. Not you guys, apparently, but uh, everyone else. Uh, I should mention, welcome those of us, or those of you joining us online today um, from wherever you are camping, probably. Um, Labor Day, it's a holiday. It celebrates the hardworking Americans by taking the first Monday of September off of work. It's also, coincidentally, the weekend in our Proverbs series, the last weekend of our Proverbs series, where I get to teach on the topic of work of labor. So I did a little research on Labor Day to figure out a little bit more about this holiday that we celebrate. And did you know it was an official holiday that stretches all the way back to 1894? And the reason why is because coming off the heels of the Civil War and off of the Industrial Revolution, there was a growing dissatisfaction among American workers on their work environments, on how much they were getting paid, on how much they were working, how many hours they were putting in a week. And uh, it all was kind of bubbling up to one moment, which was the Pullman strike of 1894 that got the attention of Congress and the then President Grover Cleveland when um, the Pullman rail cars stopped running, which stopped business revenue and goods being delivered. And it, was, it ended up in riots and um, strikes and people actually dying and troops had to be deployed. And so the president was like, we gotta do, I gotta do something. I, and so he did. He's like, I know it will fix this. I'm going to declare and decree that there's going to be a day off of work a year, and we're going to call it Labor Day. And that's what we got. We got Labor Day. That's how we got Labor Day. He's like, I'm going to give the first day of September off. Actually, back when he instituted it, it was in June, but now we know it as the first Monday in September. And uh, because of that, all of the work problems and unmet work-related expectations that we've faced in America, it's a thing of the past. Don't have to worry about it anymore. I'm glad we don't have those same issues they had back in the late 1800s, needing better work conditions, higher pay, fewer work hours. I'm glad we don't deal with that debate anymore. You know, it's interesting. Three weeks ago, um, a, an unknown, I was, I was going to say little known, I, it was an unknown songwriter by the name of Oliver Anthony who put out a song about working hard and how he feels about it in the context of America and the new world that we live in. Um, there's a lot to be said about the song, okay? That's not for this sermon. This is not an endorsement for the song, okay? Just so we're clear. But his reason for writing the song, and I quote, is to give hope to the working class and your average hardworking young men who may have lost hope in the grind of trying to get by. His commentary on the topic of work in this particular song, similar to that of the 1894 reason Labor Day was created, uh, it apparently struck a nerve with people. Within days, 
He, went, he, he showed up on the Billboard Top 100. He has over 50 million views of this song on YouTube. He is now number two, it might even be number one, the last I checked earlier in the week, he was number two in the Billboard Worldwide Global 200 list. Apparently the topic of work is a bit of a hot topic and at first I was gonna come out the gate with all of these statistics on work and what people thought about work and statistics on laziness and worklessness and and all of that I was gonna come out but I, I don't think I have to do a lot of convincing to you when it comes to the topic of work and how we work, it comes with some bad baggage. It comes with some problems along the way. And I wanna start there this morning with uh, identifying the big problem. The big problem today is that uh, most of us have a wrong view of work. Most of us have a wrong view of work. Now, what do I mean by this? I mean that often we may find ourselves in situations where we know work is necessary, but many people don't enjoy what they do for work. Many people have a lot of, uh, don't have a lot of motivation when it comes to the jobs that they do, and sadly, many people just work because they have to. I gotta work. I think push comes to shove. If I were to ask some of you in the room about your job, you might respond uh, not with joy and excitement, but sadly and statistically, many people fall in this boat. Uh, work is just a means to an end. That end might be retirement someday. Just get me to retirement. That end might be um, a vacation that's coming up that you're like, oh, if I can just make it until October um, when I go on a cruise or when I go on this vacation or maybe that end is just, uh, the, you know, just the weekend. Maybe it's just get me to 5 p.m., get me to quitting time, whatever it is. Maybe you find yourself in that boat. But also, there's another problem about work where if that's not you and you're like, I really enjoy what I do. In fact, I love what I do. I tell people all the time, work can become too important, can it? If everything is about work, that's also a problem. And we're going to talk about those things here in a moment. My hope today is that if you find yourself in the boat of work just being a thing to get by, I'm hoping that God's word would speak boldly to your heart today, that you would find purpose and motivation in your work no matter what you do. Genesis 2.15, God instituted work even before the fall of man when he said the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The same two words, work and keep, are found in the Psalms and translated as worship and obey. Work in and of itself is not the problem. How we view work can be the problem. Work was created and commanded to us by the Lord before sin, before original sin. And so work in and of itself is good. It's actually very good. But just like many good things in life, how you view it and your motivation behind it, in other words, your attitude about your job or your work can make or break whether or not you experience the blessing that God may have for you in that workplace. You know, when I was a sophomore in high school, I really wanted a job because I wanted a car, right? Everyone in that age group. I mean, actually, less, more and more today, I find young people actually wanting cars. Why? Because their parents drive them everywhere. Come on, parents. Get your kids on board with wanting to buy their own car. That's where I was, sophomore in high school. I wanted to get my own car, and so I, uh, I wanted to get a job. But around that time, there were not a lot of people hiring. And so, of course, I went to my dad. I'm like, Dad, do you know anybody who's hiring? My dad was a dentist at the time, and he had many patients, and he's like, ah, let me, I'll ask some of my patients. And he came back one day, and he's like, hey, I found you a job. It's at a wholesale nursery company. 
And so wholesale nursery, you know, taking cuttings off of plants and replanting them to have, you know, to make more plants. I guess that's how that works, right? And so I, uh, he got me a job along with my little sister Mary, Calvin's wife, in case any of you didn't know that we were related. She's my sister. And we both worked at this wholesale nursery company for that summer. And I tell you what, the family we worked for um, didn't believe in shorts, so you could only wear long pants. They also didn't believe in sitting down because that was lazy. So we had to stand up as we worked eight hours every day for a whopping $5 an hour. But if we could prove that we could take 1,000 cuttings in one day, we could, um, we, could, we could get a pay raise to 5.15 an hour, of which, of course, I did. I wanted to make sure I got paid as much as possible. And you know those uh, work experiences that dads always have in their back pocket when their kids complain about doing chores? You know, hey, you think you have it tough? When I was a kid, I had to go and, like, for my dad, it was I had to carry drywall up, you know, flights of stairs, and the flights would grow in number every time he would tell me the story. <laughs> and he also worked in a meat packing plant and a meat processing plant, both on the kill floor and the gut floor. If you know my dad, ask him stories. They are incredible stories. But we always have that story as dads to our kids. Like, if they're complaining about doing chores, like, hey, uh, let me tell you what hard work is. That's, this is that for me, this job. It was kind of a miserable job, and it was mind-numbingly boring. I would come home um, exhausted. I didn't like what I did, but I was grateful I had a job, but I would come home, I was exhausted, and I, like, my brain wouldn't even be thinking correctly, and my mom, bless her heart, would be like, hey, honey, how was work today? And um, no joke, actual conversation I had, I said, mom, you know what? Um, I would go and I would do uh, all of the things where you would plant the, the cuttings into pots. You would go into these greenhouses, um, very high temperatures, with the long pants, just sweating profusely, weeding all of the things. And, and so I just told my mom, I'm like, Mom, work was fine, but literally today, all I did today was weed and pot. <laughs> and she looked at me. She's like, excuse me? Like, even at that, I was, a, I was a sheltered sophomore in high school. I didn't even know what I was saying at that point. <laughs> but that job for me was very formative in how I viewed work from that day on. At that time, there wasn't many places hiring, so I was very grateful. Even though I didn't like what I was doing, I was actually grateful that I had something to do that was making me money. But that was very clearly the purpose for my job. That job for me was very much just, just for the money. Just for, just for the money. And... Uh, you know, some people work just for the money. Some people work just for the promotion. And Tim Keller, when he was teaching on this topic of work, identifies two ditches that people fall into when you're only working for a paycheck or a promotion. He says this, if you only work for money or for status, work becomes either too important or too unimportant. There are two ditches here, too important or too unimportant. Let's talk about the first one, when work is too important. For these people, work is life. Everything else comes secondary to their work because at the end of the day, their work is their value. Have you ever met someone like this? Do we have any workaholics in the room today? Don't raise your hand. That's okay. In Ecclesiastes 2, we meet someone whose work became too important. So if you're there, Ecclesiastes, we're going to be in chapter 2. I'm going to have it on the screen as well. It's written by Solomon, the same guy who wrote many of the Proverbs that we have been going through in this series. And he has a lot to say about work in the Proverbs as well, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But Solomon gives us an insight into what it looks like to fall into the ditch of work becoming too important in life. Starting at verse 4 in chapter 2. 
Solomon says this, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He goes on and on about the servants that he bought, about all of his employees, about his status in Jerusalem. And look at this in verse 11. He says, and then I considered all that my hands have done and the toil I had experienced in doing it. And behold, All was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He continues in verse 18, says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all of the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all of the toil and striving of the heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Thanks, Solomon, for that boost of energy there. Isn't it interesting what he's saying, though? I know it's been said uh, already in this series, but it's worth saying again, what we learn in the book of Proverbs and also here in Ecclesiastes is from the experience of a man who's not claiming that he did everything right. In fact, he's telling us what not to do based on what he did do. He's saying, don't let your work become too important, otherwise you won't be able to enjoy it. You won't be able to have satisfaction in what you do. It will all be vanity. It all is vanity. It will, you will all be lacking. It just will never be enough, and you will lack contentment and satisfaction. Look around in our world. We see this all over the place, don't we? You know, I think it's very interesting and um, uh, quite uh, not coincidental that the richest people in the world, have you ever thought about this? The very, the richest of the rich are also the same people trying to leave this earth on a rocket ship? Why is that? Perhaps they've tried and owned everything that there is to try and own on earth that they think maybe the moon or Mars will have something for them. It's vanity. It's striving after the wind. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. You know, I love sitting under the teaching of Pastor Dave and Pastor Cal. Few men in my life have the respect that I have for them and their giftedness in teaching the word of God. And I love what Pastor Dave says on this subject. I also love that I get to quote one of our pastors because this isn't the first time we've taught on a subject like this. But Dave said, don't let your activity become your identity. How do you know if your work has become too important in your life? It's when, you're, it's when you become your work and hold all of your value in what you do and you only want to talk about your work. It's when your identity shifts from what God did for you to what you do for yourself. It's when we start being consumed and controlled by building our own empires, patting ourselves on the back for the amazing things we've done. It's when we are consumed and focused so much on the bottom line that we literally can't think or talk about anything else. We become so addicted to our work, and when that happens, we prefer the office over our living room. We prefer the work trips over our vacations with our own families. We, pr- we pride ourselves in working 80-plus hours a week. We love when people ask us how we've gotten so successful in life, and we equate our value to our salary, our importance to our house size, our significance to our 401K, and sadly, we treat other people around us as objects because of the throne we've worked so hard to build for ourselves that we're currently sitting on. And before you think I'm about to 
change it over completely and preach a poverty gospel and suggest that you need to be poor and insignificant to be able to enjoy life. I'm not saying that at all. That's not what the Bible says either. In fact, we've said many times in the context of our church, it's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to be wealthy. It is wrong, though, if those things and that wealth owns you. The solution to workaholism is not jumping over into the other ditch uh, where work isn't important. The solution to this ditch is finding the lane in between to truly enjoy and glorify the Lord in the midst of wherever God has you planted to work. But first, let's talk about the other ditch. So if work becomes all about status or money only, it either becomes too important or here's the second ditch, too unimportant. Work is not important For these people, work is the bane of their existence. Work is the reason why they don't get to do everything that they want to do. Work is the antithesis of fun or enjoyment, Um, but they know they have to work. They know it's necessary. Work is simply a means to a paycheck, which they feel is never enough. For these people, doing enough to get by is all that's necessary. They they really don't care about the product or the company that they work for, um, and they also will cut corners a lot in that company and in their workplace, and in fact, there's this new wave of ideology, especially among younger workers right now. Do you know what it's called? It's called quiet quitting. Have you ever heard of this? Quiet quitting? I've heard some of the, hmm, yeah. Quiet quitting is where someone decides, you know what? I don't get enough respect at my work. I don't get, all of my expectations are not being met in my workplace. My boss is the worst. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm not just going to quit my job. I'm going to fly under the radar and do as little work as possible here, just collecting a paycheck until my boss realizes it and then fires me. It's quiet quitting. For these people, the boss is the enemy, and there always is an excuse for the selfish attitude because in their heart of hearts, they feel they deserve more, which makes them work less, which ultimately leads to worklessness. I want to jump into Proverbs now to look at what Solomon says regarding this ditch and the person he calls the sluggard. In fact, Solomon in the book of Proverbs makes a contrast between a wise hard worker and the lazy sluggard is what he calls him, the slothful person. And I want to fill in a chart with you regarding the contrast that God's word has regarding the wise hard worker and the sluggard fool and the consequences for each of them. And so I titled this chart the old classic dad joke, hey, you working hard or are you hardly working? Okay, here's the first thing we see. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who, has, who is hasty comes only to poverty. Proverbs 12.27, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. Here's the first thing. The wise, hard worker is going to experience God-given provision, whereas the foolish, lazy person is going to experience consequential poverty. The slothful will not roast his game, it says. In other words, if you don't work, you don't eat. Paul warns about this to the Thessalonian church in his second letter to them in chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Here's another one from Proverbs where Solomon is telling the lazy person to look at an insect for inspiration. Proverbs 6, starting at verse 6, says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. What he's saying is that when you look at an ant, it doesn't have to be told to work. It's just working, and it's working hard. Because of that, it has bread, it has food to eat in the summer, and it has food stored up for the harvest to be able to survive the winter. He continues on with this charge. He says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When, you, when will you arise from your sleep? 
A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, before we continue on this train of thought here, I want to address something. What God's word is speaking to here is the person who is capable of working, yet chooses not to work. God's word is not calling the person who is unable to work a sluggard. God's word is jabbing at the person who is choosing not to work and using the word sluggard. It's a specific word also translated as slothful that condemns this person based on their choice to be lazy. Okay, Proverbs 21:25 says it this way. The desire of the sluggard, of the slothful, it kills him for his hands refuse to labor. Proverbs 20, verse 4 says, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. In other words, it's cold outside. I'm not going outside right now. Why would I plow? He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Proverbs 24, uh, verses 30 through 34, this is Solomon walking by the field of a slothful person. He says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was overgrown with thorns, and the ground was covered with nettles. Interesting point here. Thorns and thistles are the same um, words used to describe the nature of the ground that was cursed at the fall of man in Genesis 3. Cursed is the ground because of you, and, I, and thorns and thistles will be raised up. You know what Solomon is saying here? I walked by the sluggard's field, and it was sinful. It was sinful. It says, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it, and I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. That little phrase there almost is like something that uh, Solomon must have, you know, was singing to his children before they went to bed or something. Doesn't it sound like a nursery rhyme? It reminds me of what my dad would always tell me growing up, going off to my first job or working on schoolwork in college, whatever it was, he would say this. He's like, Chris, always remember, work is good, but hard work is better. Why is that? Well, it leads to our second row in our chart. Hard work leads to an honorable reputation, whereas foolish laziness leads to an unreliable reputation. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine says, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Proverbs ten twenty-six says, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. I don't know a single person when you're sitting around a bonfire, you know, when the smoke starts flowing at you, and I don't, no one likes that. No one likes getting smoke in the eyes. It burns, it hurts, it's the worst, and that's what the sluggard is to someone. It's interesting, you know, one of the things I think we've lost a little bit in our modern world is this idea of a good reference, a good reference. I've had on multiple occasions people ask me if I could be a reference for a job application or a college application, and in some cases I'm like, yeah, absolutely, I would love to do that. In other cases, I've actually had to look at that person and say, you don't want me as your reference. No, well, why? Because either I don't know you or I would have to tell the truth and that wouldn't work in your favor. You know, my wife and I used to watch Downton Abbey. Do you remember the show? And we watched it before it was cool. She really wanted me to tell you that. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, it's basically a soap opera surrounding the lives of the working staff of the Grantham Mansion, which is an estate somewhere in England. Um, Anyways, many times as a worker would leave this working staff or be fired, um, they always made a very important um, note to, to mention that this person wanted a good reference from the butler of Downton. 
And so they would leave with a physical piece of paper that would have a reference, hopefully a good reference, from the, from the butler of Downton, which they could take to the next estate or the next mansion that they want to work at. And because they got that reference from that butler, they would have more of an uh, opportunity to work somewhere comparable or even better. Are we aware that how we work is a contributing factor not only to our reputation but to the Lord's reputation if, we're a, if we are a believer in Jesus Christ? Christian brothers and sisters, do we take this seriously? Do you understand that a biblical message on work has bigger importance on how you do something more than what you're actually doing? I think there's a lot of talk out there to figure out how you're gifted and finding the exact right job that you're supposed to have that God created for you and your destiny and what you were made to do. Now, listen, all of those things are good things. And if you find a job that you like and it's a great blessing in life, that's wonderful. But that's not always the case, is it? We need to start with the foundation of how we do what we're doing more than what we're actually doing. And how we work is more important than what we're actually doing because how we, ought, how we do what we do is a representation of the God who gave us the abilities that we are using to work. And we ought to want to honor him in everything we do. Can I personalize this for you? Do you know that the only reason why we have any hope in this life or the next life is based off a good reference from one person? And it cost Jesus a lot in order to be able to give you a good reference before the Father. And it only requires us one thing, faith. Believing in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But that faith should lead us to work hard and be a great representation to those around us of who our great and gracious and faithful and loving God is. We don't work to save ourselves. We worked hard to honor the Lord who willingly is going to stand before the Father someday and vouch for us. But Chris, you don't understand. My job is the worst. My boss is the worst. Listen, that may be, but understand this. You aren't the worst. Maybe you are. I don't know. I don't know you personally, some of you. But more than likely, you're not the worst, and you have a great opportunity to bloom where God has you planted right now for his glory, not your own glory. I feel like this would be a really great help for some of you in the room today. Your solution to the job that you don't like, that you feel stuck in right now, may not actually be a job change. It could be. But more than likely, it's an attitude shift, an attitude change, a purpose adjustment in where God has you planted right now. Here's some questions we need to think about as we uh, think through this. Am I representing Christ in the way that I work? How could I represent Christ better in how I handle myself at work? Would my non-believing boss be more likely to want to explore what it means to be a Christian because of the way that I work? Would my coworkers say that I'm a hard worker and good for what I say I'm going to do? Does my attitude at work say that I'm thankful to be alive and have a good God who's given me a purpose for today? Or does my attitude and demeanor at work reflect that I'm discontent or depressed? In fact, that's the third row in our chart today. Those who are wise work hard and are blessed with purpose, whereas the sluggard is depressed by their laziness. Proverbs 13, verse 4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And then one of my life verses, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Proverbs 16, 3, says, Commit your work to the Lord. In other words, dedicate, devote your work to the Lord, and get this, your plans will be established. If you don't want to worry about uh, what you do, if you don't want to worry about your future, devote your work to the Lord. 
Dedicate your life to the Lord. Dedicate everything you're doing for the glory of the Lord, and your plans will be established. You never have to worry about it. In fact, before I give you some explanation on this point, I want to give you the big idea this morning. It's this. How you work is the mirror of how you worship. Think about this for a second. For most of us, almost half of our awake lives will be spent at work. If you work between 40 and 50 hours a week, divide that into 112 hours in a week that we are awake, given the standard eight-hour-a-night sleep, and you're getting close to half of your awake time in life working What do our lives look like at work? What does the way we work communicate about the God that we love and serve? What does our work have to do with our worship? Actually, quite a lot. It's because of this. When we bow the knee and recognize our need for a Savior and believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord, everything, not just something, every day of our life, not just the weekend, should change. It should reflect gratitude for this gift of forgiveness and life that we didn't deserve that he gave us willingly. What a relationship with Jesus does is it gives us purpose in life, but it gives us purpose in our work. And that's such a blessing. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter the level or the rung of the ladder that you are on. Uh, You get to go to work. You get to represent Jesus in this world, in your workplace. You get the blessing of going to bed tired because you spent yourself working hard and glorifying the Lord for the opportunity to see him provide for you and your family. That is a blessing. That's a privilege to work and to work hard. It also allows you to rest better. I was talking with my wife about this, and she just recently taught on biblical rest at the Heart and Soul, the 20s conference that we did last spring. She did a seminar on biblical rest, and she said, you know, one of the interesting studies that she found is that for the body to physically actually rest, it's impossible unless it actually does hard work before that rest. Whereas you work hard, which makes the body produce more endorphins and other rest chemicals that are produced to allow your body to actually recover and rest better. It's almost like God created you this way, isn't it? Think of the garden, working hard for six days and then rest on the Sabbath. That should change our perspective on work. It should change the purpose of our work. Working hard and diligently actually allows us to Sabbath better. It actually allows us to do the one thing we were created for most of all better, to rest in the Lord better, to worship him better. And here's the problem. Laziness breeds more laziness and depression breeds more depression if we don't know what God has called us to do. At its root, the root of the sluggard's way is pride, being wise in their own eyes, putting everyone else and even God on trial for how they feel at any given moment without the willingness to look inward to see their error. Proverbs 26, verses 12 through 16 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is hope, there's more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Again, excuses for not doing something, not going outside. There's a lion out there. I'm not going outside. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. So much of depression and despair yields itself in sleep, doesn't it? Remember the passages before, a little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, and it wears him out, can't even get his hand back up to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Sadly, some of the hardest people to counsel are the lazy, are the sluggards. Because it's hard to convince someone that God's calling them to change something in their life when they don't believe that anything is their fault. They will quickly understand that something is broken, but the excuses and the reasons for their brokenness is always someone else's fault. It's always something else's 
fault. Now listen to me carefully here. I need to clarify something. I know many people, including myself um, in times before, have, have and are struggling with depression. Please hear me. I do not believe, nor do I believe the Bible teaches that all of depression is a result of laziness. You may be struggling very deeply today, and I want to encourage you. I want to give you hope. The same root issue may be at play here, and it's a very clear solution. Both the lazy person, the sluggard, and the depressed are faced with different degrees of the root issue, which is purposelessness. For some, the lack of purpose has led them to laziness, which leads them to depression, okay? Whereas other people, the lack of purpose in their life didn't affect your work ethic at all. In fact, you're a great hard worker, yet you're still struggling with depression. It's affected your emotions and values substantially. So whatever boat you find yourself in today, I want to give you hope in the gospel because the gospel gives us a purpose, Where we may lack purpose, the gospel fills that void. The good news of Jesus Christ changes the purpose of our entire lives from the inside out. And the gospel has to drive the way we work, has to drive everything we do, and perhaps even change how we view our work. Because of the gospel, we have a new purpose. And because of that purpose, our work actually has been redeemed. Work in and of itself has been redeemed. It's been made good again. So as I finish today, I want to look at Colossians 3 to see how our purpose has changed and how we work because of the gospel. Colossians 3, 22 through 25, it's going to be on the screen. Bondservants, workers, em- employees, em- obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Remember, how we work is a mirror of how we worship. You know what that means? Number one, God is your boss. God is your boss. Imagine for a minute how if this were true, if we were to believe this, how it would change everything in how we work. Listen, I get it. You may not have a good earthly boss. He may not be or he or she may not be worth the light of day from you. But scripture is very clear here. You honor and obey your earthly masters as a way of honoring and fearing the Lord. God ultimately is sovereign over the fact that they are your boss, and so you ought to work and work hard for even a bad boss because God commands it. Why? Because at the end of the day, God is your boss's boss whether they recognize it or not. Which means that either way, God is your boss, and we should work with a new perspective in whatever we're doing to please the Lord. God is sovereign over your boss, and when we disrespect and dishonor our earthly authorities, it's disrespecting and dishonoring the Lord because he is, what we're saying is we don't believe that God is in control over that situation when God is in control over everything. Number two, the gospel frees us to work hard. I love it what it says here in this passage. It says, whatever you do, work heartily. Have your whole heart in what you're doing. As for the Lord, you, you're serving the Lord Christ. When we serve the Lord Christ, we understand that what we are working, uh, what we are working not for the things of this world, but for the things of eternity. Scripture says, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy. Isn't that freeing? It's so freeing to be able to work in a way where we're not just working for the things of this world. Yes, God provides for us with things in this world, but our actual work is for the treasures that we are storing up in heaven. And that's based on how we do what we do more than what we're actually doing. 
with the gospel, we are freed from this world to be able to work hard for the glory of God that pays dividends into our life both now but also in eternity. It frees us from not having to worry so much or be enslaved by what other people think about us, especially our boss. It, it allows us to be free from uh, not being enslaved to the bottom line of life, knowing that when we work hard as unto the Lord, he provides for us and we're storing up treasure in heaven. Here's the third thing. Jesus is our ultimate example of hard work. Today we're going to end our time in taking communion together where we remember the intense and hard work that Jesus did for us. If you want to talk about someone who did the job that no one else wanted to do or could do, it's Jesus. Jesus, out of love, came to this world to take on human flesh, living a perfect life, and then hardest of all, died for something he didn't do. Jesus had a job, and it was the hardest, most selfless, most humbling job in the world. Go and save a people that don't deserve to be saved. That was his job. That's you and me that he saved. Jesus is the ultimate example for us of what it looks like to work heartily as for the Lord because Jesus perfectly submitted himself to the will of the Father all the way to his death for a people that did not deserve it. And I think it's important here to sit in this reality to sit in that truth. Jesus did not have to die for you. Okay, sorry for that piece of humble pie this morning. He didn't have to die for you. You're, you. We really aren't worth dying for. You know that, right? He chose to die for us. He chose to go to work that day. Jesus didn't have to save us. He chose to save us. God didn't have to forgive us. He chose to forgive us. It's because of this that how we work changes and every motivation in our life has to change from expectation of things of this world and expectation of respect, expectation of all of the sinful things that we strive hard after for. It's vanity and striving after the wind. It changes from that expectation to gratitude for even being alive. Everything in our life changes and our motivation should change to gratitude. Are you thankful for what Christ did for you? Are you grateful for how he saved you? Is that only evident when you come to church on Sunday morning, or does Christ's shed blood and broken body ever come to the forefront of your brain when you are at the workplace? Because it should. The next time you are treated unjustly, the next time you go through a work situation that you think is unfair, before you jump to defend yourself and demand respect, maybe you should think of the fact that Jesus was more unjustly treated and unfairly treated than we will ever experience in our lives. And he didn't deserve it. Will we trust him through every situation we face and seek to honor and glorify him in the process, navigating every work situation that we face? The fact that we can say that God is our boss, it came at a cost. It also comes by faith. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he died for you, that he uh, died because of your sin, that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you believe that? I'm not naive to think that in a room this size there's someone in here that maybe just walked into church on Labor Day weekend thinking maybe there's not gonna be as many people at church and I can hide in the background. I don't really know what this Christianity thing is all about and I don't know uh, really, uh, you know, I, I, maybe I'm, I'm questioning, maybe I'm a skeptic, maybe I, I, I don't know I would challenge you today as we move into this time of communion to believe there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Only Jesus can save. And it, he went through an immense cost in order to do that. And he asks of us just one thing, to believe. 
believe that he is our savior. And when we believe that he's our savior, we receive him. We receive that gift as Lord over our lives. Everything changes. We have a new boss. And I would invite you to that today. And if you need someone to talk more with about that, come up front after the service. We're gonna have pastors and elders and their wives willing to talk with you about that. And even as we go into this time of reflection now, as we remember what Christ has done for us in communion, I would encourage you as believers, maybe this is the time where the the worship team is gonna play light music during a, a time where the elements are being passed out. Maybe this is a time to bring some things before the foot of the cross and repent and confess of things in your life that uh, you haven't been honoring the Lord in and recognize the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ over those things. And then after the worship team plays lightly and the elements are being passed out, we'll take the elements together and remember the immense job that Christ did for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and this morning. We pray, God, that you would be a God who would be first and foremost in our hearts and our minds, even as we go into our workplaces this week. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for dying for us. God, I pray for anyone in this room who may not know you, that they would bow the knee to you right in this very moment, that they would recognize you as Savior and as Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.